The early chapters of Romans are not exactly sunshine and rainbows, are they? In fact, they've been kind of miserable as you've been going through it. They've been almost disheartening as you read through. The the big conclusion of last week was, therefore, no one is righteous. There are no good people, and they're all going to hell. Now let us pray. (laughs) And it's like, you can't end it like that. Well, it was important for us to take the time to go through it and not skip through it because if we don't grasp what Paul was saying in these verses, we're, nothing going to say today is going to make any sense. Say, God can save you. Well, save me from what? Well, now you all know exactly from what. From sin, from death, from hell. We're all under the wrath of God. You deserve judgment. But you know what's been missing from these early chapters that is so significant? There's been no reference to Jesus Christ, no reference to the cross, no reference to the empty tomb or grace. And when you don't have Jesus, you don't have grace and you don't have forgiveness. And when we get to verse 21 of chapter 3, there is a big time pivot in the book of Romans. And we're going to stop talking about the bad news and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the good news And that's going to be pretty much the rest of the book. There will be obviously various topics to discuss, but this is where we arrive today. Is up till now, we've looked at everything that was without the cross, without Jesus. And that's your life if you do not have Jesus. If you are not a disciple of Christ, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, that is your life. Wrath and judgment. And we're all under wrath and we're all destined for hell. We're all sinners, which means we're not perfect. Then what is to be done? Well, you all know the answer, but let's remind ourselves. Let's start by reading this whole passage, and then we'll we'll go through it in sections here. Verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. There's a breath of fresh air in the middle of the book of Romans right there. We've come from chapter 1, which is all about the suppression of God's righteousness by the wicked. Chapter 2, which is him turning to the Jews and saying, and don't y'all think you're excluded from this because you don't keep the law either. And chapter 3 just pretty much sums it up. Nobody's righteous. And if nobody's righteous, then we're all under wrath and we're all destined for hell. But then you get verse 21 and he opens up with, but now. That's sort of like when they're announcing the team. At a, at a basketball game where they give the, you know, they kind of quickly brush through the opponents. And it's like, and now, right? It's a big shift. This is an epical shift. This is the reason we divide our history BC and AD because of this, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This phrase, the righteousness of God being manifested or revealed or demonstrated, has been a key one in these early chapters. We saw in 1 verse 17 that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
And in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed. And the first thing we learned about the righteousness of God being revealed is that God is holy and righteous. We are not. And when we're compared against that revealed righteousness, we're, we're destined for hell. We're destined for death. That's the revelation of his righteousness. And what does that word mean, righteousness? Well, it's God's moral character. We've discussed this already. It's being righteous or good. But especially, it emphasizes justice, as in fairness. To be righteousness in this context here is not just to be a good person. It's to be a fair, just person, as in a righteous court. Which is why the first step of the revelation of God's righteousness was his judgment. God would not be good if he did not judge sin. He say foolish things like, why doesn't God just not punish us? It's like, well, what if a, a serial killer was brought before the judge and he said, you know what, I'm a nice guy, you, you can go. Like, that's not a good judge. That's a bad judge. He's an unjust judge. He's an unfair judge. What about all those families, right? Same thing with the Lord. But now something is different. God is manifesting his righteousness, but no longer by holding it up as a law that you've got to live up to. Paul talked about the law of Moses, but also the law of conscience. You know what's right, and you know that you're not right. But something's different here. He's manifesting that character apart from the law for all who only believe. And we're going to see, not so much in this passage as we go on, it's not just the revelation of his righteousness, but it's the impartation of his righteousness, the imputation, we would say. He's giving us his righteousness. Instead of saying, try to be like me, he says, I'm going to make you like me. Now, this is, of course, Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus changed everything. Even the world gets that. There's a difference between before Jesus and after Jesus. And they can change A.D. to B.C.E. all they want. Right? We used to say before Christ. Now they want to say before the common era. So you can call it whatever you want. You're still saying that a baby being born in Bethlehem is the center point of history, isn't it? S.M. Lockridge said he's the centerpiece of civilization, and he is exactly that. Everything's changed with his death and resurrection. And Paul points out, remember, there's a very strong Jewish character to this, this book, that this is not law. This is not Old Testament. Law and the prophets is a summary of everything you've got in your Old Testament. Although the Old Testament bears witness to it. Meaning there was always the promise that something new was going to happen with God's people. Jeremiah 31 talks about a new covenant that God is going to make. He made the covenant with Moses and the children of Israel. Here's the law. Keep my law and I will be your God. Break my law and I will punish you for it. But he says, one day I'm going to make a new covenant and there's not going to be an external standard to keep. I'm going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to give you my spirit and empower you to keep that law. Oh, the law was great. It was a good set of standards. The problem is I can't keep it. <laughs> the Lord's like, don't worry. I'm going to fix that too. It was talked about. Isaiah 53 is such a remarkable passage. I'm just going to read verses 5 and 6 here. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born talking about the servant of the Lord who is to come. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. There's Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, right? But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So all that sin has been laid on the one who was pierced for our transgressions. This was always prophesied. There's going to be a new covenant, and it's going to be made possible by the death of God's servant as a sacrifice for sins. And at the Last Supper, Jesus takes the cup of wine and he passes it around and he says, This is the new covenant in my blood. That would have set off alarm bells in his disciples' head. Wait, the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about and Ezekiel talked about? Yes, in my blood. Meaning the death I'm about to die is going to inaugurate that new covenant I've been talking about. Jesus claimed, I'm the guy. I'm the one you've been waiting for. The law could only demonstrate God's righteousness against ours. 
So God says, one day I'm going to make a new plan. I'm going to make a way to forgive sins, and I'm going to make a way to make you righteous, not just call you righteous or call you my people. And how is that possible? Through faith in Christ. Here's a little little note for you here. When it says through faith in Christ in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, the, the literal grammar there says the faith of Christ and could be translated the faithfulness of Christ. And there are many that think that's exactly how it ought to be translated. It's not changing doctrine here. He, does, he goes right on to say for all who believe But it could be what Paul is getting at here is because Jesus Christ was faithful to the law, if you believe in Jesus Christ, that same faithfulness will be applied to you. I think that's true whether or not that's how you translate this verse. Amen? Amen. That's awesome. To all who believe. said So all we had before was a standard to keep. We couldn't keep it. So we're no better off than we were before. In fact, we might even be worse off than we were before. So now what? Well, now Jesus has come and he's done something new that is apart from the law, even though the law and the prophets were always saying, don't worry, something's going to come for all who believe. And he goes on, verse 22, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Verses 21 through 26 in the Greek language are one long sentence. That's why sometimes the the verses are great, but in order to get flow, sometimes you have to go through half a verse here. But he's recapitulating everything he said before. As he outlines what the gospel is, says, there's no distinction because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, that's the first verse of the Romans road, right? You learned that back in VBS or Awanas or whatever you had when you were a kid. That all have sinned, which is everything he said so far. We've all fallen short of the glory. Remember we read in chapter 1 verse 23 that the, the men exchanged the glory of God to worship creatures. They exchange that glory willingly. This is one of the key verses of Romans, verse 23. And there's no distinction because if we're all sinners, then we all need the same help. So whatever God did through Christ, it's not just for Jews or just for Gentiles or just for Americans. It's for everybody. There is no distinction. We're all sinners. But verse 24, we are all justified by his grace as a gift justified, justification. This is a legal term. This is being declared not guilty. This has been our whole problem through chapter 1, 2, and 3, isn't it? We've been talking about how you are guilty. You can't keep the law. You can't keep any law. Even in chapter 2, he's like, make up your own law. You can't keep that one either because you're all sinners. But he says, how are we going to be declared innocent in the courtroom of heaven, not guilty? Well, that can only be by grace because you can't earn it. You know what grace is. Grace is favor. It's being given something that you haven't earned. That's why he says by grace as a gift. Those two words are so closely related to one another. Later on, when Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he will use a cognate of the word grace because it's all tied together. We speak about how I'm going to grace you with something. I'm giving it to you. It says So you can only be given a not guilty verdict by grace. It can only be a gift. It can only be freely offered to you because you can't earn it. That's been our our whole point through one, two, and three. You can't earn justification. You can't say, well, I'll take my chances when I go to court. No, you're guilty. God is choosing to give us a status that we do not actually possess. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. The grace of God. So we've seen, number one, we're all sinners. Number two, we can be declared righteous by God's grace. Now we have a problem here. How is that possible? I thought God was fair. I thought God was just. I thought God only did what was right. So is it right to take bunch of wicked, evil people and say, it's okay. I'm going to treat you like you're righteous. Are you sure, Lord? That doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you can do. It doesn't seem legal, you might say. 
Well, how does he do that? By grace, by his gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A word redemption. To redeem something means to buy it back. You see this in the book of Ruth, for example, that Naomi and her husband had lost their property. They had lost everything and they couldn't afford to buy it back. And there was something provided for in the law called a kinsman redeemer, meaning your close relative could at any time come and buy back the land that was your ancestral possession. So this way, nobody could go around doing a hostile takeover of all their neighbor's properties. He said, if, if it costs $1,000, but you don't have $1,000, your friend your, or your relative can come in and pay it and give it to you. That's redemption, buying something back. And Ruth is such a wonderful story because she's like, it's also, if you're the redeemer, you also are supposed to marry me and provide an heir for your, your relative who has died. And, and you know the story, Boaz was more than happy to fulfill that, that job. Amen. To redeem. So the redemption, this word can be translated ransom even. The liberation, the setting free in Christ Jesus. The price was paid. That word for as a gift there in Greek, it's dorion. It's an adverb. Justified, you could write freely there. You're justified freely. When God gives you salvation, he gives it freely. He declares you righteous and there's no price tag to it because we've already seen in chapter 1, 2, and 3. If there was a price tag, you couldn't pay it. So the Lord said, I'm going to give this to you freely, but you make no mistake, it cost God everything to secure that for you. He had to pay the ransom. He had to pay to redeem you. Cost God dearly. And now exactly what did God do to make that gift possible? How can God be righteous and yet declare a bunch of unrighteous people to be righteous? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And how was that earned? Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Put forward can be publicly displayed, as in God is holding up Jesus and saying, this is the way. This is how I'm going to save everybody. By making Jesus, it says, a propitiation through the shedding of his blood. That word propitiation is not one you use in common language, is it? You're never texting anybody and you go, how do you spell propitiation again? <laughs> now, what does this word mean? And there are some folks that want to really argue and fight over the wording of this verse. But let's look at what this really means here. The word for propitiation is hilasterion. There's not going to be a quiz. Just know that that's the word. Hilasterion. It means sterion. When you have the word terion or the kind of that ending to a Greek word, it means the place or the location where something happens. Okay? And hilas means forgiveness, atonement, reconciliation. So the place where forgiveness, atonement, or reconciliation can happen. It is the same word in the Old Testament that, is transla that translates the word mercy seat. You've heard the word mercy seat before? This is that word here. Obviously, it's Hebrew in the Old Testament. When they translate it into Greek, they use the word hilasterion. Now, this passage just got a lot more interesting, didn't it? What was the mercy seat? Well, in the Old Testament, the mercy seat was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. You think, that doesn't sound like a seat to me. Well, don't think of it like a chair. We, we talk about the county seat, right? This is, that's the place where all the county things happen. That's the authority location, right? It's the same place. This is the location where mercy happens, forgiveness happens. It says that God and his presence dwelt between the cherubim. In the Old Testament, there were those two angels that were carved onto the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And there was also angels that were uh, painted and woven into the Holy of Holies. And they said, this is where God's presence dwells, is here above the mercy seat. And that's where forgiveness could be purchased. Which is why, as much as I love the song, Revelation song, when it has the phrase, sing a new song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. The mercy seat was not a chair. It was the lid of a box. But it's okay. It's still a good song. As long as we know what it means. Let me read this to you. This is from Leviticus chapter 16. This is the ritual that they would execute on what was called the Day of Atonement. The day of forgiveness being provided for the whole nation. 
This is when the priest, and I'm not going to read all of that, I'm just going to read some of it, but the priest would come into the Holy of Holies one day a year, the most holy place. And he said he was supposed to light the incense before he goes in so that there was so much smoke and incense going up that he wouldn't be able to see the Ark of the Covenant. Because remember, that was symbolic of the presence of the Lord and no one was to look upon it. And he goes in and it says in verse 15, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So he would do this twice, once with a bull that was supposed to be for him. Says, but if you're going to come into my presence, you yourself need to have the blood covering you. And then he would go in the second time with the blood of a goat that represented all the people. And he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it. Think, if you get this picture in your mind, he's in this room that no one goes in but once a year. And the incense is so thick and heavy, he can't even see. Imagine how, the, how thick the smell, the aroma would be. And he takes the blood and he sprinkles it over where he knows the, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant is. And he would sprinkle it in front. Thus shall he make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And then he would come out and he would announce that atonement has been made for the nation of Israel and they'd have a wonderful celebration. So, do you get this picture a little bit here? He uses this word to say that he was put forward as a propitiation, as our mercy seat. The covering What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember? The Ten Commandments that represented the broken law, right? Yeah, and the the jar of manna and Aaron's staff that budded. But the most important thing was that law. The tablets of the law were in there. It represented the law that had been broken by the people. And there was something between the people and the broken law, which was the mercy seat. And what would be put on that was blood, because the, the wages of sin is death, right? And that would provide forgiveness. Well, consider this. We've broken God's law. And so there is now a, a barrier between God's presence and us because of the broken law. But now there is one who has covered that law, sprinkled it with his own blood, so that we now are forgiven and have access into the presence of God, and that's Jesus Christ. How wonderful is that? Somebody say amen or something. Come on now. So that's a mercy seat, but the word hilasterion can also refer to the concept that we're talking about here, which is propitiation. To propitiate something is to appease the wrath of God. And some people don't like that because they think, well, that makes it sound like that God is trying to save us from himself. That's a really crass way to put it. But what did we just read about in chapter one? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. What's the problem? The wrath of God. So how are we going to handle the wrath of God, which is not just his bad temper. It is the appropriate response to evil. Anytime you've seen something unjust or terrible, any terrorist attack, any abuse that you've seen and you get angry, that's just, right? That is the right way to feel about it. God feels the same way towards your sin. So how is God? God can't just ignore that. He wouldn't be good. So how are we going to propitiate God's wrath? Jesus did that. He propitiated God's wrath by becoming that mercy seat, the covering over the broken law, the sprinkled blood, so that we can come into the presence of God freely. So we've seen, number one, we're all sinners. Number two, we're all justified by grace. But how is that possible? Well, number three, because of Jesus' blood sacrifice. And how do we benefit from this? Okay, what do I do? What do I got to do to get in? If If I want access to that, What do I do? He says it is received by faith. That is, it is acceptance from the heart. And you think that's so easy. Oh, it's tougher than you think. There are a lot of people that are insulted by the thought that I even need a sacrifice to cover my sins in the first place. There are others who are insulted by the fact that I can't somehow work out a way to save myself. Like Naaman, the Syrian. Such a classic example. He was a leprous man. He had leprosy and he hears that Elisha can heal people. So he shows up with his great retinue and he's a military man. So it was a great procession and he comes and shows up to Elisha's house and you can picture the trumpets being blasted, right? The great Syrian general Naaman has arrived to speak with the man of God and 
Elisha didn't even come outside. He just sent one of his servants. Said, Go tell him if he bathes in the Jordan River seven times, he'll be healed. And Naaman was offended by this. I come all this way. First of all, my country's occupying his country. He can show a little respect to me. Secondly, I'm coming to him asking for help. He can't even talk to me himself. He's just going to send a servant. And then he tells me, I've got to go bathe in that nasty little creek that they call a river. And that's going to, like, if I could take a bath at home, we're leaving. (laughs) We're not going to do this. And then it says his servants came to him and said, my Lord, if he had asked you to do something hard, wouldn't you have done it? You know, go into the labyrinth and slay the minotaur. It shall be done. He said, but now he's asking you to do something easy and you won't even do that. So finally, begrudgingly, Naaman goes and bathes in the Jordan River seven times. His leprosy is healed. He goes back to Elisha and Elisha still doesn't come out to him. He says, I've got gifts. I've got money. He goes, I don't want your money. Go away. It was free. I said, all right, I'm leaving. Because we get like that. It's too easy. That's it. I just have to receive it by faith. Yes, because if it was anything else, you couldn't do it. Don't lie for the rest of your life. Ready, set, go. <laughs> Honey, we've got a conversation to have in the car on the way home. Don't, don't covet anything ever again. Don't get angry with a, without a cause ever again. You can't do it. Even when you have things like, oh, say this many prayers and come to church this many times and tithe this much money. What does that have to do with your soul? That, that doesn't fix you. It is to be received by faith. If you believe that Jesus' sacrifice was enough, you will be justified by God's grace. That's the good news that sets us all free, isn't it? That when you stand before God, he's not going to say, well, let's take a look at all the things you've done. He's going to see, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? And that will be it. The Bible says that the Lord remembers our sins no more. That's grace. That's a gift. That's something you don't deserve and that you can't earn, but God gave it to you anyway because he loves you. Let's keep going. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're bringing it back. Remember, this is all about the revelation of God's righteousness. From chapter 1 through now, that's what we're talking about. God's justice and his mercy. The full omnibenevolence of God. The fairness and righteousness of God. And here's the issue that Paul's talking about here. To show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. How can we say that God is just if he's allowing all these sinners to get away with it? Why did God not just torch the world the second we all sinned? You can hear Satan, the accuser, bringing that to the Lord. You're not good because you're allowing them to get away with this. You get mad when you see things like that on TV, don't you? Why don't they just step in and do something about it? It's not right. It's not fair. The law is the law. You've got to keep the law. So God's been showing divine forbearance. How can he be righteous then? By pouring out his wrath on his own son. That's how God can be righteous. It was always building to this. That God says, the wrath that you deserve, I'm going to pour out on my son, Jesus. All that terrible judgment that we talked about those last few weeks. The penalty for your sin was put on Jesus at the cross. The beatings the mockery, the lashings, carrying his cross, not even being able to get it up the mountain, hanging there, dying a public, humiliating death. That's what you deserved. And God poured it out on him so that he could freely offer pardon through a perfect sacrifice. So how can God offer this freely? He says, if I can propitiate my wrath, if I can pour it out on a perfect sacrifice, Then I can offer pardon freely. Isaiah 53.10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That verse is telling us that 
as hard as it was for the Father God to see his son dying on that cross, it was pleasing to the Lord. Why? That's so barbaric. All people want to talk about, I can no longer worship a child abusing God. And it's such a cop-out. Nobody believes that. They want, to, they want to chase after their own fleshly lust is usually what's going on there. But it's also a failure to understand the Trinity, the fact that this was, in fact, God pouring out his wrath on himself. Also, that Jesus willingly did this. God didn't just grab his son by the scruff of his neck and say, you're going to be my sacrifice. This was always the plan of God. Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This was the plan of God. And it's also, if you say something like that, well, God abused his son, you are such an ingrate. You are ingrateful. You, are so, you do not understand your own sin and that this is the only way for you to be saved. No gratitude, no thought of, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Well, I don't like the way you saved me. It's like, you don't get to pick, man. You are under, you are under judgment. You are, you're on death row, man. You don't get to say, well, I don't really think that was, that was right the way he did that. That's foolishness. At the cross, you have the fullest demonstration of God's righteousness. Because he was demonstrating his wrath against sin. Look at what happened to Jesus. That is what sin deserves. But you also see there the mercy of God, don't you? You see God showing mercy and kindness to the whole world. It all meets together in one powerful moment. One picture. One sacrifice for all time. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, there was darkness that covered the land and there was earthquakes and the veil of the temple was ripped into two pieces. The whole creation was heaving when this happened because the precious son of God had been killed. But at the same time, this was the joyful moment of all of history, wasn't it? This is why when we have Good Friday, we're we're sobered and we're heartbroken, but we're also full of joy because we know what it means. And Sunday's coming, as we say, right? Mercy and justice meet at the cross. I've said it before, like the two beams of the cross. Mercy and justice in the person of Jesus Christ. If you have mercy without justice, you get licensed. You can do whatever you want. People get run over. They get trampled. You have justice without mercy. That's a hard, hard way to live, isn't it? No one is righteous, so you're eventually going to find out that everybody deserves the wrath of God. But in Jesus, you have the mercy and the justice of God coming together in one beautiful gesture of redemption. It's, it's amazing. Amen. Just, as in punishing sin, but also the justifier. God, in his love for you, wanted to save you. But he can't just bypass his justice. That wouldn't be right. So what the Lord did is says, I will take the penalty upon myself, so that way I can offer it to you freely. Your debt's been paid. You've been redeemed in Jesus Christ. So we get to verses 27 and 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And verse 28 is a summary statement here. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And everybody said, thank you, Jesus. Because we've already seen, I can't keep the works of the law. And he's returning back to our point in chapter 2, that nobody can boast about their salvation. Remember that? He says, all these Gentiles, this is all the sins that they've committed. And the Jews are like, yeah, that's, that's what I keep trying to tell them, Paul. And he turns them in chapter 2, he says, but you too, you don't get to boast about, well, I, I'm an Israelite. I'm a son of Abraham. John the Baptist said, the Lord can turn that rock into a son of Abraham. So don't come to me like that means something. Nobody can boast about their salvation. You can't come in and say, well, yeah, I, I really did it, didn't I? It's no longer about being Jewish or being moral or any of those other works. They are all excluded. And what's so wonderful about that word excluded is that is exactly what the Jews had done to the Gentiles. By boasting in their status as possessing the law of God, they excluded the Gentiles rather than accepting them and sharing the love of God with them, which is what they were supposed to do. So Paul comes in and says, you know what's excluded now? Your pride. Your thought that you're somehow better than everybody else, that's what's excluded. The new law, he says, is the law of faith. 
that is the new standard of judgment, the only question that's going to be asked on the final day is what did you do with Jesus Christ? That's the standard. That's the law. Faith in Jesus. 1 John 3, 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Verse 28, I'll read it again. It's just such a perfect summary. For we hold that one is justified, declared innocent, by faith apart from works of the law. No law is enough to save you. And this is primarily a reference to the law of Moses, but as we saw in chapter 2, verse 14, that your conscience can serve the same function. So any law. I don't keep the Ten Commandments, but you know I keep the Buddhist seven steps. Well, first of all, no, you don't, because you're a sinner and you can't. Secondly, it doesn't matter if you did it as well as you could. You're still a sinner and you didn't keep it perfectly. That's enough. So we're not, we're not exchanging the old law for a new law, because law is the problem. Or should we say, we're the problem and our inability to keep a standard. So the only standard left is faith. By grace through faith. And this is not just intellectual assent, by the way. It's not just, yes, I believe that all that is true. That's such a key part of it. And I found that many times people that claim to believe it, they really don't. It's just the thing to say, you know. It's the thing to do. Yes, yes, of course. Well, I'm not a Muslim. I must be a Christian, right? You're seeing less and less of that, by the way. And I think in, what, in many cases, what you're seeing is not that so many young folks are walking away from the Lord. It's that they don't care to play the hypocritical game like their parents did because there's no cultural value to being in the church anymore. That's a little rabbit trail, but it's important. It's not just intellectual assent. James 2.19 says, oh, you believe that God is one. Well, that's great. So does the devil. <laughs> James, is, as we've said before, is a, is a spicy writer. He has no time for anybody's excuses. It's not just enough just to believe it. There are lots of people that believe, I believe there was a man named Jesus, and I believe that he died on the cross, and there's some interesting testimony that he might have risen from the dead. That, that, that doesn't mean much. You can believe that, but have you committed to it from the heart? Here's the thing. God can see what's really going on in there. So it doesn't matter if you fool me. You can fool me, you can fool your wife, you can fool your husband, you can fool your kids, fool your boss. Well, boss really wants Christian people working here, so you know I can kind of play that game. God can see it. God can see right through you. Well, I have faith. God goes, ah, but I can see what kind of faith you've got. You've got convenient faith. You've got faith that allows you to maintain social status. It's kind of like when election season rolls around, and all of a sudden these liars and cheaters and corrupt people start t- quoting the Lord's Prayer in churches because they want to maintain the Christian vote or something like that. I don't know why we keep falling for that, but we do. But it's like, you know what, pal? I'd, I'd rather you didn't pretend sometimes. I feel that way, don't you? So listen, I, I like what you're doing, but I don't believe it. Well, that's better than saying I do believe it and then not. But it's the same thing for any of us. It doesn't matter what our status in life is. What kind of faith are we talking about? Well, I want to give a couple of quick examples. And I had this thought as I was going through it. Salvation has always been through faith. It wasn't like salvation used to be by circumcision and the law. No, no, no. It's always been by faith. So these Old Testament saints, I think, give us a really instructive lesson on what kind of faith we're talking about. Consider Abraham. The Lord said, get up, leave your family, go to a new land that I'm going to show you. And he did. He just got up and left everything. And then he was at one point weeping and crying before the Lord saying, God, you said I was going to have a lot of children. You said I was going to have descendants that no one could number. We're now old. And it actually says in that that story that Sarah was no longer able to have children. She was postmenopausal at this point. And Abraham's like, "So, so now what? It's over. You failed. And the Lord says, go outside and look up at those stars. Count them. Can you count them? Because that's how many descendants you're going to have. God didn't give him a sign. God didn't give him a vision. He just said it. And as Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. We'll look at that verse more in a few weeks here. But that's just belief. I trust that God meant what he said. And Abraham devoted the rest of his life to that Lord, even though he went decades without seeing any sign that what God had said was true. He just believed. And in the end, he was willing to sacrifice even his own son to that same Lord, believing that if God's going to raise him from the dead, if God's going to give us another miracle baby, I trust him. That's faith, is it not? What about David? 
David was called the man after God's own heart. Ponder that. Read, knowing that God said, this is like my favorite guy. <laughs> go back and read his story again. Because you'll go, what? Are you sure, Lord? This guy? Th- this guy that had a couple hundred wives and a couple hundred concubines and you know, people that, that came to him and, and had done something he didn't like, he'd chop off their hands and hang them from the city walls. Oh, a bunch of y'all sat up. Yeah, that's in your Bible. <laughs> that David, the same David that committed adultery with his friend's wife and then tried to lie about it when she got pregnant and then sent that friend off to be killed at the front of the battle and then took her into his house and everybody thought, oh, look at David is such a compassionate king. That David? Yes, that David. Why? Because David had faith in the Lord if he had nothing else. He learned it when he was a shepherd boy with no prospect of ever being anything more. He's out there writing songs like, the Lord is my shepherd. He stepped up when Goliath was standing against him. He said, I'm a little kid with a slingshot, but I serve the Lord that is able to defeat any enemy. So I'm going to step out in faith. David trusted the Lord to provide him with the kingship without taking it for himself. He refused to kill Saul when he had the opportunity twice. When he was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba, he lay face down before the Lord and wrote that beautiful psalm, Psalm 51, asking for forgiveness. That's faith. He, he, his whole life and religion, as we say, was based upon him serving and worshiping the Lord. That's faith. What about Daniel? Didn't Daniel have faith? Daniel, who was kidnapped, basically, might have been castrated, according to the story, depending on how you want to read that, brought into the king of Babylon's house and is going to be raised to be a, a Babylonian representative for the nation of Judah. And he says, the food you put before me is unclean. I'm not going to eat it. And everybody's like, Daniel, if you don't eat that, they're going to kill you. They killed everybody else. You don't think they're going to, they, they have us here because they want to make nice with us. So if you're not going to play the game, they'll just kill you. And Daniel said, I'm not eating it. That's faith. Daniel went before the king, this megalomaniacal king that would erect 90-foot golden statues of himself and would interpret his dreams faithfully to him. He said, you know what? The Lord just told me you're going to be living the next seven years thinking you're a cow on the back 40. This is the same king that would have people executed for giving him bad news. Later on, they made a law that said it's illegal to pray. You know what Daniel did? He went home, he opened up his window, and he prayed towards Jerusalem where everybody could see him. They said, we're going to throw you into the lion's den. He says, my God is able to save me. That's faith, isn't it? Amen. That kind of faith, that kind of lifelong commitment to Jesus Christ. Say, I believe that what Jesus did was true and enough to save me. Therefore, my entire life is committed to that. You can take anything away from me you like. You can do anything to me or my family. You can torture me. You can threaten me. You can bribe me. I can't be bought, I can't be killed, I can't be threatened because I believe that's faith. That is true, saving faith. And if you want the ultimate example of faith, isn't it Jesus Christ himself? In the Garden of Gethsemane. So nervous, so racked with nerves that either, depending on the translation, he was sweating as it were, great drops of blood, meaning that he was actually beginning to sweat blood, or he was sweating so much that it looked like he was bleeding. You ever sweat so freely that it just was like blood flowing out of you? You get the picture either way. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I'm going to die by crucifixion tomorrow. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. And when he's hanging on that cross, The only thing he had to say was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's saving faith. When you stand on the brink of death and eternity and all you can say is, Father, I'm trusting you and that what Jesus did was enough. That's kind of frightening, isn't it? I think maybe I should have something else to kind of show God. Like, uh, Lord, here is my my membership in... You know, this Christian club, and here's all the, my tithe statement of how much I gave, and here's all the people that I led to Jesus. The Bible's like, no, 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 no. None of that's going to help you. It's only faith in Christ. If you can abandon any attempts to earn your own salvation and decide, I'm only going to stand before God with the name of Jesus, you will be saved. If God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? The answer is because I believe in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice was enough. Verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, 
who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And Paul brings it back to that impartiality. You remember the situation in Rome. There was this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles because the gospel had come to Rome, probably to the synagogues first, but then all the Jews were kicked out of Rome. So the church existed there as a Gentile church for a short time. Then all the Jews come back, and you can imagine them wanting to kind of get things back to the way they were, and they're like, you know what? Y'all have been gone for years. We've kind of got something going. This tension here, he's going to talk about it a lot in chapters 9, 10, and 11. But he's saying it's, it's not about that. It's impartial. God is the God of all. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 in verse 30. God is one. There's only one God. Not the Gentiles' gods and our gods. There's only one. He's the God of all. And he's going to save them all the same way because they were all equally lost. And you can imagine the Jew just hearing that and saying, well, then the, the law means nothing. And Paul goes, by no means. Remember that phrase? Megenoita. May it never be. What are you, nuts? No, 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 no. Of course not that. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And that's what the next chapter is going to get into and explain. But it does bring out here the inadequacy of standards and works of righteousness and into the marvelous forgiveness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's not about how well did you keep the law. Did, did you dress right? Did you watch the right movies? And eat the right foods? Did, did you not do the things you weren't supposed to do? Did you, did you vote the right way? Because that's what God's going to examine. No, the only thing God's going to examine is your faith in Jesus Christ on that day. And that sometimes leads to conflict in the church, doesn't it? Paul's going to address that in chapter 14. That people just couldn't quite accept the total freedom that faith brings. And they were still trying to bring up these, these rules. And Paul goes, listen, if, you, if, you've, if you're into that rule, that's great. But keep it to yourself. And if you've got some kind of crazy freedom and God's just giving you all kinds of faith, you don't need to rub it in nobody's face either. It's about obedience to the Lord through faith. Psalm 49 said, No man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. You can't save anybody else and you can't even save yourself because your life costs too much. The good news is that it is offered to you freely in Jesus Christ because he paid the price at the cross. That's why grace is a gift. Jesus paid everything that you owed. Everybody wants to talk about student loan forgiveness, debt forgiveness. This is the ultimate debt forgiveness right here. Your debt was incalculable, and Jesus came in and paid it for free. So what have we seen? God is righteous, and that righteousness required action from him. That's the demonstration of his righteousness. All of us are sinners. You're a perpetuator of the cancer of reality. The world is worse because you are in it. That doesn't seem very nice. You know yourself. Don't lie to me. And God's wrath demands that he judge such people forever in hell. But here's the thing. Within God's righteousness, he's also merciful. How can I just wipe out all these people I made? And as as life has gone on, they they didn't know anything else but sin. And they say ridiculous things like, well, it's the failings of life that make it beautiful and all that nonsense. So how can I just let that continue? So he delayed judgment out of compassion. He allowed history to play out. And in the meantime, he gave us the law, which proved how sinful we were. But it also promised that someday I will accept a sacrifice for all men. And we might look around and say, okay, but is there anybody up to the challenge? Because a cow isn't going to pay for sins, certainly. A goat's not going to pay for sins. It's got to be a perfect person. But the problem is there are no perfect people. So the Lord said, I must become that perfect man. And Jesus Christ was made incarnate through the Virgin Mary. And he lived a life among us, but separate from us in that he never sinned. And when he went on that cross, it was like when that goat was killed in the holy place on the day of atonement. And as his blood dripped down off that cross, it was like the sprinkling of the blood over the mercy seat. And in fact, he became that mercy seat. He became the place where forgiveness happens. The broken law, Jesus Christ, the mercy seat, and the presence of God. He's the bridge. He's what brings us across. 
And on that cross was the full revelation of God's righteousness. Justice through the death of Jesus, but mercy and love because of what that death accomplished. Now that that's been done, he can offer free salvation through grace. All that stuff that was coming your way, death and hell, he can save you from it. What do I got to do? Nothing, because he can't do anything. Just believe. And on that final judgment day, you're going to see the mercy of God at work. But you're also going to see the judgment of God at work for those that refuse to accept Jesus' sacrifice. Every Naaman who went home, insulted by the insinuation that they needed free salvation, and went back to Syria in their leprosy, they're going to stand before God and face their judgment. Acts 17.30, which is such a close parallel to this chapter, says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How do you know this is true? Because Jesus rose from the dead. The number one thing the church exists to do is to carry on the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. That's the number one thing. That's how we know it's all true. So, well, I haven't seen it. Well, you know what? Jesus said there's a special blessing for you if you believe without having seen it. I have incredibly good news for you. God is willing to forgive your sins and help you start your life all over again if you will put your lifelong faith in the work of his son, Jesus. And the rest of this book is going to talk about it. It's not just being declared innocent. God wants to send his Holy Spirit to fill you and transform you into the kind of person that deserves salvation even though you don't. You've got grace to catch you when you sin so that no longer do you have to come and make another sacrifice. It's already been paid for. Get up and keep trying. The Lord wants to give you gifts so that not only are you yourself being saved, but you're bringing benefit and edification to people around you. You're no longer making the world worse. You're building up the church. That's good news, isn't it? We've seen the revelation of God's righteousness at the cross. So the question remains, what will you do with Jesus Christ?